righty. Peter, it's been a while. It has. Yes, it has. It's been, I think, over a month now since our yeah. last episode. Well, it matters um, who you talk to. It might be too short for one of us. So, uh, that's true. <laughs> well, so so today, we've, uh, we've been working on this episode. I've been trying to line this up for a while. I um, was hoping to get it before General Assembly, but um, we've got a special guest on today. And you know what? Before we even introduce him, it's been a long time since I've just done our intro uh, to the podcast for the audio version, but um, we just want to welcome you to Sound Engagement. This is a, a podcast devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. I'm Brad Mills. I'm Peter co-host Anderson. Peter oh, Anderson. <laughs> it's all good. And our special guest, Susong Park. I'll let him pronounce his name a little bit more accurately <laughs> than I can, but uh, it's it. I said Susong, which is close, right? It's pretty good. <laughs> so, um, well, Peter, why don't you go ahead and introduce him with the you know the notes that we have there, and then yeah. and we'll jump right in. Well, we have a special guest uh, with us today. We've been looking forward to having this conversation. As Brad said, we wanted to try to get it before the General Assembly. If some of y'all don't know what the General Assembly is, it is it's just something that the Presbyterian Church of America puts up. I believe once a year. Is it once a year? Yeah. Yeah, and to vote on various issues. And he is the lead pastor of Revive Presbyterian Church in Sunny Valley, Sunny Valley, Valley, uh, California. Sunny Vale. Sunny Vale. Oh, okay. Not Sunny Valley. It's, that's giving it too much uh, positive, <laughs> too much of a positive aspect. And in the <laughs> Bay Area. And Susang is a Bay Area native and a graduate of Stanford University outside of California. He's lived in Boston, uh, where he met his wife. Uh, Grace and in Philadelphia. He's also he also studied theology and ministry at Harvard and uh, Westminster Seminary. Uh, the Parks have three children. Reside in Cupertino, isn't that where Apple is? Where it is? That's Apple. where it is. Yes. Whenever I see my Apple phone, that's what. Yeah. And they moved <laughs> moved there in two thousand nine and began serving in the church out of which Revive was planted. Among other things, he enjoys. He is particularly interested in connecting the gospel to the culture. So welcome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Good Great being here. Yeah. All right. So Sue Song and I are in the Northern California Presbytery, um, and we served together actually on the Racial Reconciliation Committee uh, that we formed. I believe it's been a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, but we started talking um, about the racial reconciliation issue and just found ourselves aligned on some things. And so I... I uh, reached out to him, had a longer, lengthier conversation, found out he was a huge fan of Thomas Sowell. And, uh, and so then we, we started talking about that and, and just cross-cultural ministry in general. And I thought maybe a, a way to kind of do this conversation would be to, to tie all those threads together, which is to, first of all, address the, what happened at the General Assembly. I think some of that will set up what, what we would talk about with Thomas Sowell, which is kind of a critique of the culture, our, our nation's response to cultural issues. Um, I largely see that as what Sowell does in his books on, on culture. You guys may inform me better on that. But, you know, he's got his economic books where he's, uh, you know, a, an expert. And then when he deals with the race and culture issues, it seems like he's largely critiquing things and, and not necessarily proposing a, a a better response. He's just sort of critiquing. But anyways, we'll talk about that some. And then I thought we would close out with, uh, which 
Susang, you've done a, a lot of research on these various uh, topics, especially in terms of how how it affects your ministry. And so I thought you could share with us some of those resources, why they've been helpful, uh, how we can be thinking about this a little more a little more directly related to the church, uh, which is something that uh, maybe soul obviously soul doesn't doesn't go from that angle. Um, so that's kind of the outline of the topic. We'll, we'll open up with PCA General Assembly. We'll go into Thomas Sowell. Then we'll end with some resources or recommendations for how maybe a better approach to cultural issues. And obviously, as always, um, Peter and I just sort of will go on tangents. Uh, you're welcome to take whatever tangent you like as well. Um, and we'll just have fun, fun together. But I thought I'd lead this first section here on the General Assembly. Um, I personally was really happy with the results of the assembly. Uh, I know we've briefly mentioned there's some mixed response on your end, but um, you know, back on episode 18, uh, Peter and I discussed queer theory, and we we brought up in that episode the topic of side B Christianity. And just to remind our listeners, those who aren't familiar with that discussion, right? Side B Christianity is is really has to do with uh, the Christian view of homosexuality. One is that homosexuality is not a sin to practice it. You know, it's, it's, it was mainly just a cultural prohibition at the time. Uh, if you, you know, any scriptural prohibitions, uh, it's not relevant today. So you can be a practicing homosexual and a Christian. That would be side A Christianity. Uh, that's really, that's rejected. That's, that's not something in our denomination that's acceptable. Um, and, but side B Christianity is something that's had a, a, a broader discussion happening really since Revoice took place. I think it was 2018. Um, that opened up this discussion about whether or not you could be, quote unquote, a gay Christian, sort of identify yourself with that, um, with that, uh, you know, not the, not the practice of homosexuality, but with the desires same-sex attraction. You can identify with that, but then commit yourself to remain celibate. And so there are SSA or same-sex attracted ministers in the PCA. Uh, more of them have spoken up about this issue. And yet they say they're, you know, uh, they're committed to celibacy. They're committed to not um, following the cultural response to this. Um, but they also view the church as being a little too harsh and, and, and hardened in its view of even rejecting people who have a desire. Um, so it, there's obviously more nuance to that, but that's the idea is that kind of there's um, there's what I what I see is equivocating on the issue, um, whereas we want to draw a clear a clear line in the sand, at least. Uh, and that I think what was what happened at the General Assembly. So the first thing we did was we looked at the study committee report. There was a study committee on human sexuality, overwhelmingly passed. Very few people were opposed to it. Um, but, and it passed only by a show of hands. So I don't think we had an official vote tally on that, but it was, I mean, I saw like a smattering, like maybe five or six hands up at the, it was very minimal out of the 1800 people voting at the time. So, um, and then there's the, so that committee report was sort of where we wanted to start with. Let's, let's look at the other overtures related to this topic based upon our, our large consensus of agreement on the human sexuality report. Um, 
on one side, you had people who thought the human sexuality report was good, but didn't go far enough and that it didn't recommend anything. Most study, study reports in the PCA have a recommendation at the end. Mm -hmm. They say, here's some things you should do to begin implementing this. This one didn't. And so people saw that as a flaw. Others saw that as an advantage, right? They said, well, every Presbyterian session can decide how and how to use it um, in a way that suits their ministry um, and helps them. On the other side, there was the idea that you'd have basically the exact same challenges and that we're currently facing um, on this topic, where there's not a consensus among presbyteries, there's not a consensus at all among churches, um, and and there was a, a desire to find more unity um, among churches on a position on same-sex attraction. So that was where those those folks advocated for a an amendment to the BCO. And so those, there were several overtures related to that amendment. It narrowed it down to basically two, Overture 37 and Overture 23. Overture 23 uh, passed with the more support than 37. I think there was something like 78% passed 23. They liked the wording better than Overture 37, um, which passed with like 62% on the floor. So still good you know, strong support for the overtures, but 27 had, or 23 had a, had better support. And I know I don't want to get too deep into each one of those overtures. You can look them up, but I did agree that I think overture 23 had better wording and language than 37. And I thought the minority report for overture 37 was simply trying to align the two overtures with language amending the BCO. Again, that's that kind of gets confusing to talk about, but I, I was in agreement. Really, I didn't see any problem with the minority report either. I'm still waiting for a better explanation of why people were were strongly in favor of 37 and, and opposed to the minority report. But basically I thought as most people did that the committee, the ad interim committee report on human sexuality was excellent, um, but that it needed these BCO amendments in order to um, to provide some some enforcement, some opportunity to enforce those views rather than simply being pious advice. It's like every presbytery could could do with it what they wanted. Uh, I thought there needed to be something more done. What do you think about that, Susong? Sorry, that was a long explanation, but I wanted to give people an <laughs> overview. Well, um, you know, like I. Uh, I, 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 I thought the human sexual report was just superb too. And my kind of take is I actually think the amendments are just a little too soon. Um, and so I'm actually not, I am not wild about uh, amendment, um, the, the wording of, you know, the, the revised wording that they, they voted on in 23. I think, I think it's unclear and I don't think it's mm -hmm. going to help lead toward um, unity. I can see how some of the presbyteries, would like read it like, hey, this guy has same-sex attraction. He can't be a teaching elder, okay? Where some people would say, well, this guy has same-sex attraction, but he doesn't consider an identity that you can embrace, but you should fight it, you know, in the spirit and, and, and remain celibate. And, you know, like I'm in favor of that position. Like, I think we have to have a carve out for that, that we have. And if, in fact, I would go so far as to say, we need teaching elders who, you know, I, I know some people won't like this language, maybe suffer, you know, suffer from same-sex attraction, but it's unwanted. It's not something they want. And they wouldn't mm -hmm. go around and say, I'm gay or 
I've heard some people say, I have a, I know a brother-in-law. He's, he's not a, he's not a pastor. He's not a teaching elder. He's an older guy. Um, and he left the gay lifestyle a long time ago, you know, in the early nineties. And today he would call himself a homosexual Christian. But when you listen okay. to him, you're talking about a guy who's like in his late fifties. And that was the language he used back then. Homosexual meant that I have same sex attraction, but he would in no way say I'm gay. Like I embrace a lifestyle or approve you know, approve of that choice of identity, or even say that having that desire is not sin. He would say that. So in that sense, he would be very much, you know, as far as I'm concerned, biblically orthodox. But I think we need teaching elders who can confidently in this, in this context, in this time, say, hey, I have this thing. I, I don't want it, but mm -hmm. I, I want to live biblically. And I think it's important that we have people who could say, and, and in, in ways that speaks to young, especially young people today who, who want to say, hey, you know, like I have this feeling. And since my feelings tell me everything of who I am, because that's what postmodernity basically is, isn't it wrong to tell people that like, you know, because if sexual desire is like a way that our identity has to be completed and fulfilled, you know, that's the that's the that's the, uh, you know, the tag word that isn't it bad and wrong to say that you are, you know, people who have this belief. We, I, I think we need to have some really important voices in the church that can say, hey, I I experienced that, but but I've chosen something better. Jesus yeah. is better, right? And, you know, we have examples of that. We have, like, say, Sam Alberry. You know, I actually really respect Sam Alberry. I, I wish there was a PCA example like Sam Alberry, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, 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 and a non-white example like Sam Alberry. Um, I know we're going kind of a lot. Let me say one more thing about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what do you think? I mean, do you know, yeah. uh, just briefly, do you know Stephen Moss? Do you know I about Stephen Moss and his story? Because that would be is pretty. He, PCA? Is he, he is in the PCA. He's not ordained, but he was a, a, one of the co-founders of Revoice who recently basically stepped away from that because he's repenting. He recognizes he didn't really understand concupiscence. He has rejected the idea that uh, his desire is okay as long as he doesn't act upon yeah. it. He now understands that even the desire is sinful, and 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 that work he worked through those issues with some pastors in the, the Missouri Presbytery, which helped him to see that and come to that conclusion. Which I think was a really helpful interview. But if you're looking for someone who's maybe an example of Sam Alberry's position in the PCA, I think he'd be close to it. He was not a he was not a fan of the overtures either. Um, but I actually think it's out of, uh, frankly, and I know this is sort of a buzzword that uh, is overused, but I do think it's out of a fear that he'll be targeted rather than simply recognizing that what, what was being targeted, if you want to use that language, is, is those who would identify themselves with that sin so as to legitimize the desire. Yeah, and I, I, I see that's when, when I read it, I don't feel like, there's clarity on that. Okay. okay. Like I, okay. I don't I don't think there's clarity on that. Um okay. I, I talk I was sitting with some of the brothers in our presbytery. They sure didn't read it that way. And sure. they did feel like some of that language was targeting people yeah. who have like same sex attraction to say, hey, you have no you have no pathway to be a teaching elder. And right. that's where I don't I don't I don't like this. And and this is what I mean by like um I think we need a little bit more time to digest. I thought that report on human sexuality by the ad, I thought it was superb. 
And there's mm-hmm. a portion in there that explicitly says, let don't be too quick to judge people on their language. Just as mm-hmm. I, I mentioned my friend who's like closer to boomer mm-hmm. age and he uses the term homosexual Christian. I wouldn't use that term. I think it's too confusing, right? Um, but Which I think is what the report says too. Right. right? And I, 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 he himself, I think would mean, well, I have same sex attraction, but right. in no way do I think that that's a legitimate, like, you know, like, uh, that that is not that 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 is it's an allowable is yeah. exactly it's not biblically illicit it's biblically illicit and so that's the space and we're looking for a language to say that I mean like if I it was up to me I would say we should be able to say a, someone is a same sex attracted Christian but I wouldn't like it if a person said I'm a gay Christian or I'm a homosexual mm-hmm. Christian right because I think mm-hmm. same sex attracted is starting to in our culture starting to like signal I have these feelings, but don't don't assume that I I believe in the gay agenda or Got don't it. believe, you know, like whereas like the term gay or even homosexual, homosexuals all is getting more and more kind of a neutral, like descriptive term too. Right. But what we need is something kind of like close to a neutral descriptive term that doesn't have like a religious theologically laden worldview inside of it that's opposed yeah. to the scriptures. And that's kind of like we're not there yet in our culture, right. but we're not even there in our church. Um, hmm. So I would like to get to that. And it kind of reminds me of the early church when, you know, like, is it hypostases? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. that word's like, what is person? What's the conceptuality of a person, you know, um, in, in, in the doctrine of the Trinity? And really, it's like this new, it's a, it's a concept that's actually being kind of demanded by biblical doctrine. But mm-hmm. the language of the time is kind of inadequate to to offer, you know, a, a precision of language. And I think we're kind of in that kind of a space. And some of it is, you know, it's it's because the culture there are there are I mean, there are basically heretics. Uh, that's what I would call them heterodox. You know, they call themselves Christians, but they want to carve out some space, you know, like a few years ago during the revoice, he had this thing called spiritual friendship. I remember reading that going like, right. you know, right. like, no, we can't, you, you know, that's just, a, that's, that's confusing. But yeah. I, I'm very much in favor. We need some, we need a position of somebody who can say, I have same sex attraction, but I gladly, willingly, proudly live for Jesus in full obedience to the scriptures and don't seek sexual fulfillment in the way our culture seeks it. Um, that's kind of my hope. And I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't feel like that language was clear enough. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I, I teach psychology and um, I'd end to cut over here. And one of the things that often uh, I see in most psychology books, especially the ones that aren't ideological either, they've done a lot of studies that men who are attracted to other men, um, the likelihood of them being attracted to women um, it's very, very, very low. And I used to, I used to think, okay, are they, how can I see this as a Christian? Now for, for uh, women, it's actually much higher for them to quote, switch over to the opposite sex. I too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I invite that as research, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think two things could be true at once. I think you can, I, I, I have, I know people in my life who are believers, who are Christians, who have same sex attraction, very high same sex attraction, and they've never ever um, had attraction toward women and they have served the Lord and loved the Lord for 20 plus years. Um, And it's a burden. It is a burden for them. And I, I, man, I, the, the work they do in 
one per one particular person who does go to our church um, has just been amazing. I mean, he has reached out to like just hundreds of people in the community. Um, and yeah, he would identify himself first as, as a believer though. I mean, he, yes. would not, and yes. he doesn't, he, yeah. And I, I do like that because we do live in such a, um, culture where identity trumps, <laughs> you know, yeah. our, our faith in Christ. And he would never say that, but it is a struggle. And, you know, and I do mm -hmm. think we mm -hmm. in the church need to invite that. Um, yeah. I, I, well, I, right. Okay. Well, one thing I just want to say is it, the, the passage that comes to mind is some are born eunuchs and some are made eunuchs. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously it's not really a super attractive verse in our context, but a, a lot of people just underestimate the fact that sexual and sexual desire, sexual fulfillment, it's an idolatry of our time. And of course, people are trying to turn this into into an identity. But like, I, I don't know if a guy who wasn't interested in women like 50 years ago or 100 years ago or something like that would have been like labeled gay. Oh, that guy's that guy's gay. You know, he like sets off my gaydar. Like that's the way people talk today. But like, you know, like everybody has kind of had that single, you know, you got that single uncle who for whatever reason never seemed to want to get married. And, you know, let's say you're in Korea, it's a highly patriarchal and super family oriented culture. And someone like that 50 years ago or 100 years ago, I don't even think nobody would even blink at that. There's just like, you know, like assume that he's, he has to be gay and be attracted to a man in a sexual manner. In fact, most people wouldn't even assume that because that sec that that whole sexual aspect of it, the culture wasn't baptized essentially in sexual lust all the time. And this belief that sexual desire has to be fulfilled in a certain kind of way, or and somehow you, you're less human or your life is not as fulfilled. Um, so I, I don't know how in our post-sexual revolution time we could ever get back to something more balanced like that. I think something like that is is more balanced. And, and we need to get to something like that where somebody who doesn't particularly want to be with, uh, you're a man, doesn't want to be with a woman in a sexual way, that you're not broken or weird in any or, or lacking, that maybe you're just gifted. Actually, you're gifted. Right? I, I, yeah. And I would say that that's, that's like just one tiny little thing that's actually occurring in a lot of churches, especially liberal churches. I forgot the person's name. He was saying, you know, there's a, um, he was basically um, saying, uh, uh, saying that open marriages are, um, hmm. should be honored before the Lord, uh, basing his evidence on stuff from Esther Perel. And, you know, uh, you know, so there, this is just hmm. one teeny little blimp on the radar on, you know, on, hmm. on the, when you look at sexual identities and, um, you know, genders and whatnot on what's acceptable. I mean, you know, same sex attraction, that's one thing, but are we, are we prepared for all of the other stuff that culture actually wants to take the church or, or I vice mean, versa. We're way yeah. past that now. Like, yeah, uh, I feel like that's like old yeah, school news. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. Not that, not that that report wasn't important. It was, but you know, it's also, it could be seen yeah. as a little dated, I guess. It could be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you'd have to read it. I thought it was really, really helpful. Yeah. I didn't um, read it. Yeah. I don't want to make any judgments. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. The, the authors of it were, were pretty broad. They actually had two of the authors are same sex attracted. Um, and then they had Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, um, some of the, uh, those are the two bigger names that I, that I recall on the committee. But, um, anyways, it, it was, a it was a well done report, but 
in the end, we're, we're going to keep talking about this. I know it's going to be addressed in our presbytery and sure. those BCO amendments will come up. Um, it, the next step is for those amendments to pass two thirds of the presbyteries. So that's a, that's a pretty big hurdle. Um, there's 88 presbyteries, which means at least 59 will have to pass uh, these amendments. And, you know, my guess is, is there are a good, you know, a good number, a dozen or so that'll immediately reject them. Um, ours is probably leaning in that direction already. Um, but I'm, again, I, I'm going to speak in favor of them at our presbytery. Um, the, uh, there's probably a good, you know, two dozen or so that are immediately going to pass them without, without much debate. But I think there's a large chunk of presbyteries in the middle there that'll, that'll determine this issue. And um, so we'll keep talking about it, but let me move on. Cause that really was just a side side note that I wanted to address <laughs> that was leading us to the issues that we've most recently been talking about in our podcast, which is critical race theory. There were two issues still, still on the topic of, of general assembly uh, that were recommending study reports on white supremacy and critical race theory or CRT. Um, those were soundly also rejected by a show of hands, maybe a, a, a higher number than the, definitely a higher number reject or were interested in it than, than in the human sexuality report. But the fact that our moderator, Roy Taylor didn't have to go to a, a, a counted vote shows that it was a, su such a significant majority opposed to the reports, uh, to the study committees that he, you know, it passed by show of hands or they, they were rejected by show of hands. Um, so I, I do think we, we could have made a statement to reject critical race theory, um, especially because I think in terms of its influence, um, it doesn't seem to be dying away. It seems to be gaining a foothold within the church. And I think we do probably need to say something against it as a denomination. It does seem to me, though, that the majority, the vast majority of our denomination is opposed to it. And that became clear at this General Assembly. So our churches, uh, you know, might appreciate a, a denomination taking a, a strong stance against it. Uh, but in the end, I think we're glad that, that there wasn't a need to spend $15,000 to study the issue or the topic and then come back with a report about it. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on those particular study committees or do you have any, did you have any leaning on this? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I probably would agree with you. I would like there to be a good nuanced and theologically informed statement repudiating critical race theory. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm going to probably make some of my Asian friends, Matt, I mean, I'm, I'm very strongly against well, critical race theory. Okay. So, um, yeah. you know, and I don't generally like the overall tenor of our country right now where people who are non-white have to like, they want to position themselves as somehow victims over some kind of oppressive white majority. I just don't really, be, I don't believe that. And I don't think that's even good for minorities. And it's, and it's certainly bad for, um, you know, civic unity in, in all kinds of ways. So, that's my general take on something like that. And so I'm not wild about like the church getting kind of caught up and wanting to, you know, end up in what I think is overly a guilt laden, kind of like a secular guilt laden um, form of religion, you know, by, by our hmm. culture. And uh, I think that the gospel has far better resources and we should stick to the gospel and seek mm -hmm. unity unity in Christ, not so much look for some type of like 
politically kind of like external, you know, like extrinsic demand on a certain kind of conformity on, on issues of race that's going on in America right now. Yeah. I think it's also good. They probably define um, everybody keeps saying, well, that's not really critical race theory. And this is really what, you know, I keep seeing that. And um, I have the definition right up in the Britannica, you know, if that's if I could use that, that it's an intellectual movement, loosely organized framework of legal analysis uh, based on the premise that race is not a natural biological grounded feature of physical distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed, culturally invented category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color. Uh, CRT holds that law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inadequacies between whites and non-whites especially African-Americans. So I, I, I like to give that definition because there are a lot of people that say, well, that's not really CRT. You know, we're not really proposing CRT. But the minute you right. you you state that um, discrimination or excuse me, disparities equal discrimination. Right. You're you're an advocate of CRT. It's that simple. You know, the minute you say, well, this is because the minute you use the word white um, uh, white privilege, you're you're proposing CRT. The minute you say, um, the reason of the you know the housing market is because of, of racism. Well, it's because of CRT, and that's where you and I we start and Brad, you know, when we start talking about CR, um, Thomas Sowell, he was my red pill on just demolishing a lot of the arguments that I had assumed that were true. So I think I think people, yeah, like I call like just what you were talking about earlier, the LGBT agenda. It needs to be very dissected because you could just say stuff without even realizing that you're a proponent of something. You could say, I'm a gay Christian, for example, naively, without even realizing that's coming from like queer theory and maybe yes, a little it bit is. of it you know, you know, Ju Judith Butler and whatnot, or even saying that gender and sex are two totally different things, which again is coming from queer theory. Um, no scientific evidence for that. But and yet if you ask the person, why are you the queer theorist? They'll say, well, no, I, I've never read anything by queer right. theory. Right. And I think people, it's like, I, I, I like to say that because the actual definition that you could just read online, you know, it, the minute we start saying that there are power groups and there's right. oppressor versus yep. oppressed. And a lot of that has to do with white consciousness. And I would, I could just talk to Christians it's amazing the number of Christians that I speak to or talk to, they just kind of say things, just these assumptions. And, and then I ask them, why are you proposing critical race theory? And they, well, I'm not a critical race theorist, you know? So I, I do think definition can really help, you know? So anyway, my little two yeah. cents there, but Good. just wanted to define well, it. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, this is helpful. The The last group of overtures I wanted to address with General Assembly, then we'll move on, is is just the issue of, or the those overtures that had to do with anti- uh, Asian American Pacific mm -hmm. Islander uh, hatred. So you had two overtures that Atlanta proposed, really one overture that Atlanta proposed, and then it was right. recommended by another presbytery, just uh, the same one. And um, those both were rejected. Uh, I can't remember if that, I think those were also just rejected by a show of hands, but they were, they were, uh, um, they were not rejected. What they were was they were um, referred to the Overture 48, which was proposed by um, the Korean Presbytery, I think Kore Korean Capital Presbytery or something like that. Um, but so we'll get to that one. But the first thing was just the idea of which we talked about a few episodes ago, uh, Peter and I, um, I think they had proposed that, you know, five Asian Americans be 
placed in a position uh, within the I think MA to study the topic of anti-Asian hatred and sort of promote uh, a history of Asian American in minist uh, ministries and various various resources for the church. Um, and all of that was rejected. I think it was good. I was in favor of, of the General Assembly's response because I did, I did think the, the statement itself was selective. It was partial regarding sort of who who deserves our weeping you know like we should weep with those who weep and mm -hmm. uh it will rejoice with those who rejoice there's a lot of um a lot of people weeping over injustices the last 18 months and so to highlight just one demographic i thought was 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 unhelpful and then secondly i thought it set a pre would set a precedence that sort of we're going to be a denomination that follows the culture on these issues. And if, if a hot button issue comes up, we're going to make a statement that sort of aligns ourselves with the culture so we can win some, some points there. At least that's the way I saw it was sort of virtue signaling. So the only uh, uh, virtue signaling I was ever a, a fan of was when we had the, the initial response to the droughts in California. And it was like, don't wash your car. And it's sort of like you could signal your virtue that you were in favor of not washing your car, <laughs> in favor of saving water by, by driving around in a really uh, dirty car. Um, so it's just, it, it just gave, gave way for me to be lazy on that area. Um, <laughs> any other virtue signaling? <laughs> I mean, on those parts, oh I mean, I read through those overtures and, and, in general, I don't like the spirit of those overtures for a lot of the similar reasons that you're saying. I mean, um, I, I don't know if a bunch of people shoot a bunch of Hispanic folks tomorrow. Do we have to have a, a whole nother right. set of something? You know, you're saying what I'm saying. Right. And and I also didn't like kind of the heavy handedness, like take it to the assembly. The assembly has to point five. Got, I mean, like, mm -hmm. well, if you really want that, you don't have to do it this way. I mean, you could right. do a little more bottom up. Why don't you go to CDM and say, hey, can we get some more Korean guys on this? And, mm -hmm. and I mean, like, and they'll be like, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Right. You know, and like, so like, I think there are ways you could get maybe more Asian voices or perspectives and places like that without, you know, having to make it a big, you know, to do with the whole, you know, at the assembly like that. But in general, I mean, I'm, Okay, let me make like a, a big broad statement, which I think sure. will also relate to, 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 to Seoul. I'm very against this whole idea of looking at people according to their race. In general, mm -hmm. I think it's it's a it's it's a very much a reductionism. Like hmm. um, like do you guys see yourself as European Americans? I mean, are you European Americans? Hmm. So mm -hmm. like I don't really the fact that I'm Asian. It's not really a part of my identity. It's it's more like a descriptor, okay? You know, right. my ancestors come from over there, and I, what what else does it mean that I have like straight black hair and slanted eyes? Is is that all it's saying, right? right. But in my actual, in my actual like you know self understanding, and in the in a meaningful identity like in, of, of of who I am, it's actually culture, not race. You know, mm -hmm. um, so like. I, I have Korean ethnic heritage, right? I'm, as far as I know, I'm 100% Korean by blood, right? Yeah. As far as I know, anyway. As far as you know, and, yeah. And, um, you know, and so, like, that's a, a substantive part of my identity, but I really am Korean American, you know? Like, uh, yeah. when I hang out with first generation, they feel I'm pretty American, right? And so, but then when I'm American, what, what, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm, mm. I'm, I'm white, 
right? Right. Like, right. Uh, like in my marriage, I have this joke that I like to. Like, I said this in front of my congregation. I'm like, you know, you know, 35% Korean and 45, 40% white and like 15% wannabe Mexican and 10% <laughs> confused. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> and, 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 my, and my congregation laughs when I say that, but I'm only kind of like only kind of half joking when I say that because I'm actually giving what I consider to be something like an objective description of my cultural makeup. Right. And I would even argue that if you have everybody, like a whole bunch of Koreans, for example, a whole bunch of white people, a whole bunch of blacks, um, studying a particular issue, that's actually more of a concern because, I mean, bringing psychology again, I mean, one thing that psychology has actually proven is the problem with in-group bias. And, you know, so the question, you know, we are very tribal in our nature. And that's what bias and Daniel, Daniel Kahneman wrote about this in his new yes. book called um, Noise, which is fascinating. He talks about how bias and noise often come in. And, and that's one of the reasons why we make very poor judgments. Um, you know, I mean, whenever there's groupthink, you are going to make significant more error by trying to force it to say something that it doesn't necessarily say. Um, you get a whole bunch of fundamentalists in the room, you know, and um, you're going to force Genesis one to say a, a certain way, you know, it, when the text, I don't know where y'all stand on this, but <laughs> might not quite say exactly the way it is right. and, you know, and, and vice versa, you know? And so the, the best way to address these issues is actually not to have everybody in the same, you know, categories to actually have a lot of people that can challenge groupthink. I mean, because I think yeah. the question isn't so much, how do we get rid of racism as much as how do we, how do we, decrease the, or how do we become more aware of our own biases as well as the noise within our own tribe? And I like what you said, because I think we're psychological studies prove that people really love their tribe and their skin color. And I think that's why you could say uncle Tom call somebody like Tim Scott and uncle Tom, Thomas Sowell, uncle Tom, all these people. And yet, I mean, no one was um, pointing out um, Amy Comey Barrett's gender when she was going before the Supreme court, but everyone wanted to point out RBGs, you know, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's gender. And that's all, you know, when she was, when, when she was passing, hmm. <laughs> not one word for about her gender, basically from anybody, um, but hmm. from people that disagreed, why is that? That's like really fascinating. And I think most of the time prior to making judge, judgments, that's what we do. We, we, we like to see which tribe that person is in. Is he wearing, okay. Is he wearing a mask? Um, and protecting us, or is he not wearing a mask and, and he's really just a secret serial killer? I mean, and we did that. Psychology's done this. I mean, we we um, there was a test that there was uh, they wanted to. Um, they, was, I can't remember the name of the study, but if you're like an intense Red Sox fan and you viewed multiple photos of people who are actually wearing Red Sox jer journeys jerseys, nobody looks at skin color. They looked at what jersey you're wearing and the heart rate, they actually, you know, they actually looked at the heart rate and it actually went down significantly. Um, wow. And even people that were minorities, actually, there was more empathy <laughs> toward those people because they're like, oh, my God, my brother. You know, but if you looked at Yankee fans and your heart rate would actually go up and it's it, it significant. And in one study, male football um, fans brains are actually scanned and receiving like this uh, electric shocks through electrodes on the back of their hands when they saw a, a fellow fan in pain. Um, they actually liked, um, they actually like got very empathy. concerned and, and mm -hmm. regardless of race. Re so regions associated with empathy were then activated. They actually were, you know, and then mm -hmm. quite the opposite 
when they saw the regent um uh what was it scheidenfreud i hope i'm i'm, I'm sure i'm mispronouncing that yeah yeah were, Re, um region associated with reward would then be activated if the yankee is the yankee fan if, they, if, oh, the, if they're losing that's terrible I mean, you know, so I mean, I think that that is a that those are some fascinating I don't like either studies. Team. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I'm a Red. I like Reds. <laughs> I'm actually kind of a Cubs guy, but I mean, that would be great. And then what? 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 Unfortunately, what I notice of a lot of these quote studies, they're not really <laughs> not asking even the right question. Hmm. Um, you know. So I anyway, that's my little yeah. Well, I just as an aside, I'm a Dodgers fan. What are you, Susong? You said you like baseball. Yeah, I, I'm an A's guy. Hey, sorry, A's. Red Sox are just Oakland Evil A's. Empire two to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's Evil Empire one on yeah. the East Coast, and Evil Empire. And now we have two. I guess we have multiple Evil Empires on the West Coast. Now we have. Nice. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. that's terrible. Don't go yeah. there. Don't go there with the Dodgers. Oh, All right. So, so <laughs> the last, the last one I did want to say, and this one's a little more um, direct because you had the Gen General Assembly passed a revised statement in response to the Korean. Presbytery Overture 48. It was Korean Capital Presbytery. So titled Repudiate Anti-Asian Racism. And I, I learned something interesting after General Assembly talking to a friend. The, the overture was submitted by Korean Capital Presbytery. It was championed by one particular church in that presbytery, which is uh, I believe in the New York area. Um, and I won't mention names, but the wife of the pastor who's who's on the church website as a co-church planter also works for uh, the Center for Anti-Racism Research at Boston University alongside Ibram Kendi. Uh, we've talked about Jamar Tisby in the past as well, both all, you know, all working in, the, in that same region. So I did think that that was an important point um, to, to recognize sort of where this overture is coming from. I'm not sure it's it's an overture that resonates with the vast majority of Korean presbyteries. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, but let me bring up the, um, let me bring up the, the overture because like I said, it's, um, it's an interesting, uh, it's worded in, you know, very directly, very sort of forcefully. Um, and then, and then the response of our uh, overtures committee is just very minimal. So obviously when it came to the floor, um, it, it ended up being rejected, but there was some discussion of, or no, sorry, the overture committee recommendation was, was passed, which was a much smaller version of this. So at first I was a little concerned that they were passing anything, but they, what they passed was, was pretty, uh, was a truncated version of this overture. So let me just read it, um, portions of it. It says the Bible maintains the Imago Dei and, and ascribes every human being with the immense value and dignity of being image bearers of God. Um, Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, tore down the dividing wall of hostility between people, um, which who would otherwise be divided by constructs, both natural and social, including ethnicity, gender, age, social class, occupation, and race. You have a long history of anti-Asian sentiment in our nation, um, exhibited by the massacre in Los Angeles, 1871, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, Japanese Americans during World War II, the internment of Japanese Americans, uh, the murder of Chinese American Vincent Chin in 1982. Um, so you have examples there. Of course, what I find interesting is all of these examples are national um, examples, nothing within the PCA, nothing from the church's involvement in those things. But regardless, the next one says the church 
in the, at the 30th General Assembly of the PCA adopted a statement on racial reconciliation that confessed covenantal generational heinous sins co connected with the unbiblical form of servitude. Goes on and on about um, basically commending the the racial reconciliation uh, response. Later on, the I think the racial reconciliation report may be mentioned, but it's. They, they go on to say, because of this rhetoric, there's recent anti-Asian rhetoric fueled by anti-Asian remarks made by influential political and thought leaders. Again, I find that interesting that what they're using as evidence for the need for this overture is strictly cultural. It's strictly the response of our nation rather than any problem within the church itself. Uh, you have, there have been over 3,000 reported hate crimes against Asian Americans since March. Um, and there's a long history of our government baselessly scapegoating Chinese immigrants for epidemic outbreaks along the West Coast, going back all the way to 1870, resulting in their vilification, destruction of their properties, and even their deaths. Okay, so <clears throat> lastly, I just, so I, I wanna go, it does give the specific example of Asian American women who were among the eight murdered in Atlanta, Georgia. It, it highlights that incident, um, which again, gives it a racial, um, qualification that may or may not be accurate. Uh, and then you have Asian Americans often experience marginalization. So the resolved is this, resolved to uh, that the 48th General, General Assembly strongly repudiates the sin of anti-Asian racism. And then it gives several additional things like that the PCA reject and condemn culture of sexual objectification of Asian women, which destroys their inerrant status as bearers of the Imago Dei. Be it further resolved, the PCA denounces the use of rhetoric discriminatory against Asians, uh, like such as using phrases like Chinese virus um, outside of academic and journalistic purposes. Uh, be it further resolved that members of the PCA commit to actively denounce anti-Asian rhetoric, racist jokes, mocking, and other actions they witness. Um, be it further resolved. So it goes on and on about these recommendations that every church should be doing, every Christian within the PCA, um, and and then humbly consider ways like it, the closes, humbly consider the ways that we have either explicitly or implicitly contributed to the anti-Asian racism. That that language in particular is troubling to me. We we've seen that within the idea of. Um, you know, critical race theory, this implicit bias. So now we're, now we're using CRT language in this yeah. overture. And then, so anyways, the last thing I'll just say, and then I, and then I'll be quiet. I promise the overture 48 uh, was answered in the following way. The report of the Adoniram Committee on Racial and Ethnic Reconciliation to the 46th General Assembly speaks clearly both to the reality of the Imago Dei in all people and to the sin of racism, particularly when it affirms the vision of the redeemed in Revelation 7, the image of God reflected in all people, the image of Christ reflected in his body. And then at the same time, we recognize the pain and at times violence that Asian American Pacific Islander community has experienced particularly due to events of the past year, we express our grief together with our AAPI brothers and sisters over the pain and suffering that has occurred, whether this has happened due to unbiblical religious claims, racist pride, or any other cause. We finally assure our AAPI brothers and sisters of our love and support and of our desire to walk together in ways that reflect the commitments of the racial reconciliation report. All right. So sorry. I, I, I again, I, I, I wanted to read through that because I think you see some problems in the language of the original overture and you can see how it was probably the reason why it was championed by 
the church that championed it. Love to get your thoughts on how it was responded. The, the danger with this response is that it gives the impression to 20% of our denomination that we don't really want their involvement, right? That was the argument on the floor from some was that like, we want participation from our Korean brothers and sisters in those presbyteries. But uh, the first time they produce an overture and present it to our denomination, we we essentially reject it or we revise it so much that it's that it's not like anything in the original. What do you what do you think? I mean, it's a big mess. Okay, I mean, <laughs> what, what I mean by that is like, I don't even know if the majority of the Korean presbyteries, you know, like first generation churches, do they feel like they're being oppressed by white folks in America? Mm. I, I, I don't feel like they would be aboard that that kind of narrative for, for one. So if there is a portion who wants to speak on behalf of the whole overture and they got the over, I, I don't know. And there, there's this other issue going on too in, in some of the, I used to be in the Korean Southwest Presbytery. There, mm. there is clearly a first generation, second generation issue going on there where first generation, they have their own preoccupation. Second generation, they got a different set of preoccupation. And then within the second generation, you got like more progressive and more conservative, whatever, right? So mm -hmm. this feels like something out of the more progressive side of a second generation preoccupation. And maybe the first generation said, okay, I want to do this. Okay. You know, like, sure. and so that's don't, I mean, you, you can't take that to the bank. That's kind of like, sure. I, I could see that going down in Korean Southwest Presbytery. Right. And I, I was in that Presbytery for many, many years, but I mean, you know, of course, a lot of Asians feel like minorities, but this AAPI hatred thing, I, I, I mean, I'm not really in favor. You know, like, okay, you know, let's be against AAPI hatred. If you put it that way and you say, well, I'm not really in favor of that, that makes you sound like what? You're because you're a racist, you don't care. That's right. That, the, whole, the whole thing is kind of like geared to be kind of a form of emotional blackmail. That's how I see it, right? And that's how CRT basically operates. It's like there's a certain kind of feeling that you're supposed to have. And these are the oppressed people. You don't care about oppressed people. If you don't, you know, if you don't show that you have the proper feeling by agreeing with the people who have that stance, then you're you're a bad, hateful, like insensitive, racist kind of person. And that's the kind of blackmail that's used not just on race, it's used on sexual. Anybody who's a, a minority is oppressed. And so I, I'm, I said this thing earlier. I, I said, um, I would love it if America stopped fixating on race and we start trying to get more serious about trying to understand somebody's, you know, like self-professed cultural identity. I think that's really where they're at, right? That's a much more substantive way to try to understand who they are. Um, but a second thing I'd really like to say and um, is, you know, like one of the brothers on the, uh, you know, the the the, um, the TE who was African American. I was really listening to, you know, that 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 uh, the future of the um, the PCA, and I actually really love this pastor. You know, when I listened to him, I'm like, gosh, I love this pastor. But he said something in his statement, which was like about if, um, you know, like he seemed to think that cultural Marxism or neo Marxism was like just trying to dismiss somebody, like dismiss a point of view, mm -hmm. like you know, like if you think that white people have been insensitive to black people and then say, therefore you're more mm -hmm. sympathetic to say something like CRT. Um, but one of the things I want to say is I don't think it's, it's a form of dismissal 
to call it mm-hmm. neo. I, I I think the right the right you know some people call it cultural Marxist. I call it neo Marxist, the new Marxism, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's um I don't think that's an unfair way of describing them. I don't think that is a dismissal. In fact, quite quite it's quite the opposite. If you take their ideas very seriously and understand them on their own terms, it is objectively neo-Marxist. That's really what it is, right? And um, and one of the things I want to say is, is I didn't learn my neo-Marxism by reading Abraham Candy or somebody else. I, I learned it at Harvard, the worst seminary in the whole world, between <laughs> 1993 to 1996, and they didn't call it neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism at the time. Hmm. But when I was at that school, that's this is what it was all about. It was all about today we would use the language if you're cisgender white male Christian, you're kind of like apex predator. You're like the ultimate oppressor. Right. Mm-hmm. And really what you, and today we have this term intersectional, which means you have more of the you have more of the oppressed markers. You're more of a minority than that person. Right. And so, right. you know, um, and so any kind of like hermeneutic of culture that looks at like you got the oppressor and the oppressed. And then there's this kind of movement where if you won't, you know, like just side with the oppressed. And this is what I mean by a kind of emotional blackmail. Uh, well, what you can call it whatever you want. That's Marxism. That is neo-Marxism. That is neo-Marxism. That's exactly it's strategy. That's exactly it's hermeneutic. You can change the language. You can say like, well, let's talk about lesbians or how about, you know, the ultimate oppressed person when I was at Harvard Divinity School was like black lesbian feminist. I mean, she's like oppressed on every front. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, that's what it was like. I, I was like, well, I guess I'm only kind of oppressed because I'm Asian because I'm male mm-hmm. and I'm Christian and I'm heterosexual. And the whole thing was, was super divisive and is oriented toward anger and hatred and blame a lot of it and and weaponizing guilt so much of it was geared toward weaponizing guilt but there's no pathway toward atonement forgiveness reconciliation a unity of of people of different you know different backgrounds and different histories like the bible teaches you know you have like ephesians chapter two you were far once far away but by the blood of jesus we have you have been brought near and you've been yeah. you are made like one house of the Lord. That's that's the gospel. And all these kinds of like viewpoints that are trying to like pit one set of people over against another by calling one set bad and then or like positioning somebody as like as a historical victim or guilt or uh, um, as you know, and the other side is guilty. That's neo-Marxism. And so in general, I'm pretty not happy with any of this stuff, but at the same time. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, you have people who do feel excluded, right? Mm-hmm. You do, you have people who want to say, could you help include us? And, and generally, you know, dominant cultures have not been good at that, right? And that, that's the term I would like to use. I, I don't want to use term white versus black. I want to use, say, dominant culture, because that's the reality of it. In, in any culture, in any time, in any place, whoever kind of has a dominant culture they're generally not great at being understanding and sympathetic to the minority side. And so this is a a way of trying to kind of rectify that, but I think it's a really poor and actually a very spiritually dangerous way. Mm-hmm. I also felt like they left out a lot of stuff. I mean, they weren't really honest with the data when they were talking about, almost like it was a kind of a slam toward Trump, 
in one of those right. things that the political leaders like, who are you talking about? Um, almost like they, they didn't say it, but it was almost like looking at it from people who are uber conservative or maybe from white consciousness. Um, there is Asian hate. And Brad and I talked about this and it predominantly comes from inner city black neighborhoods. Um, and I witnessed that, you know, I've seen that before and living in predominant, you know, um, I mean, I, whenever I would, gosh, I, I remember one, I lived in Chicago, I lived in Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, I can think of three instances, once in Chicago where I was just a little kid and there was talk about Asian um, prejudice that I saw, like heard mainly from black communities. Mm-hmm. I would have really respected it if they actually said, let's go witness to our black brothers and sisters or our black neighbors to help them with their Asian hate. But they weren't willing to do that. Like they, they that would have been, and I think the reason why is because they would have been really kind of um, thrown under the bus by the culture and probably deemed as racists. But again, that shouldn't be, if you're, if your honor is truth, I mean, the very thing that we as Christians need to be looking at is truth. You know, it's like, we have to be careful of slander and we have to be careful of mom mentality because mom mentality put Christ on the cross. That's, that's kind of like one of the, my little motto right there lately, you know, and it's like, if that is really, okay, so if there is Asian hate, let's look where it is. Asian yeah. hate, there is a lot of Asian hate. 95, 98, I forgot what the numbers were, is really coming in predominant high black neighborhoods. Um, so, okay, let's have that discussion. Why wasn't that, that in the Westminster, you know, so why wasn't that in there? So they're just kind of like leaving all that out, acting like all these people have to apologize who are predominantly in white people. You know, so that that may open up the door to an, a wonderful ministry opportunity, but that gets completely not in the that's not in the discussion because I almost felt like they just kind of copied and pasted on Apple's you know page and then mm. <laughs> put some Bible verses in there. <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know, saying or, or I mean, I, I've 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 had Asian friends who basically say that in private too. It's like yeah, hey, yeah. a lot of the incidences they're not coming from white people. You know, the violence isn't mm-hmm. coming from white people, and more than a few few people I know have 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 noticed that and pointed that out. I've got some friends who, you know, they're not white and they ask me, they're like, you know, Asians are oppressed. What do you mean? Asians are kicking butt in America. <laughs> they're, they're, getting, they're going to the best schools. They make more money than white people, you know, on average and stuff like that. So I have friends who are non-Asian. They're not white. And they, they're actually confused about this whole idea that Asian people are somehow oppressed in America because they're like, it doesn't feel that way to me. And um, mm-hmm. so... Again, as I think about it, it's it, 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 it it's anomalous. It doesn't fit or make sense with well, the reality and the data because it, it it fits more like the religious narrative of our time. Well, it's funny That's you say that. It, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because actually at Harvard, um, there are a lot of Asians who did feel oppressed, mainly through the very argument that the CRT, the way that CRTs views reality according to oppressor and oppressed, because people were looking at that predominantly Asians were going to engineering programs, making significantly more money. Uh, Asians do make a whole lot more money in our, um, in a, a whole lot of cultures. I mean, what is it, you know, so it's not just in America, um, you know, and, and Seoul writes a lot about that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, all the billionaires in Thailand, all the billionaires in Thailand and in Indonesia, in Indonesia are actually of Chinese ancestry. Right. They're Chinese. Uh, it's, you know, so, right. and there were, and one of the things about the affirmative action resol- um, lawsuit recently that Harvard University, a lot of Asians actually did feel, you know, um, that there was prejudice against them. And I, in that case, rightfully so, based on their skin color and based on, well, you're kind of higher up in the, you know, on the spectrum here. Well, so, I absolutely yeah. agree with, I mean, well, okay, probably getting in trouble for saying this. I totally agree with the lawsuit. It's, it's mm-hmm. straight up 
racist. Yeah, okay? right, right. I do, yeah. Therefore, you have to get way higher scores and everything like that. You're not a minority. I mean, like, it, it's just the, the, the it's the, affirmative action. Yeah. It's right. so it's like that. Um, I, I hope that actually gets to Supreme Court and finally the Supreme Court say, well, I guess the only way to stop discrimination is to not discriminate. You know, like think that's what, right. uh, what you know Chief Justice John Roberts has been quoted as saying. And I'm like, well, I would have liked it if that was the way we were operating for the last 30 years. That's probably mm. where we really need to. And if you actually pull the vast majority of Americans again and again and again, that's actually what they want. <laughs> The vast majority mm. of Americans who are not among the quote unquote educated elite, that's what they want. You know, they're just like, hey, just make it fair. Stop judging people according to whatever their skin color is and just make it fair, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that would go a long way to help, but that probably yeah. sounds hopelessly naive to some people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, just to clarify, and then I want I want to turn it over to, to Peter to talk about uh, Thomas Sowell with you, and I'll chime in as I can. But I, I we're way over. Yeah, we're not going to end it. Yeah, we're hour. already over but, an hour. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I but just on the idea of the anti Asian hatred and the violence. So I think there are different data points that are being researched. So those who would say that uh, there is a an increase in anti-Asian crime statistics. A lot of those statistics are not in, are not limited to um, violent crime. It's right. It's, it's including racial slurs that were said or com like th comments made in conversation, maybe at a workplace uh, that there was no violence involved, but maybe a, um, a joke or something like that was said and then reported. And, and so some of that, they then say, well, see, it's not just um, it's, the it's a broader spectrum of people um, uh, oppressing uh, Asian Americans. But when you look at the, what, when you narrow it down to just the violent crime, that's when you start to see it's mostly almost all coming from inner city uh, urban and urban context vastly, uh, or I don't know the percentages, but a large percentage of them coming from black uh, perpetrators. So uh, I just wanted to clarify because I think if people did research, they would come with, I was trying to figure out what the data was saying, and it all just depends on who you're listening to. Right? I mean, you kind of have to do a broader study of the topic to really understand how much of an increase there is. And it does come down to recognizing even the increase in crime, it's, it's coming from a very small number uh, to a, to another small number, but it, but because it, you know, because it's, gone from 12 to 20, it looks like, a, it, it, percentage wise, it looks like a massive increase in hate toward Asian Americans. And that's would, part of the manipulation yeah. of the data. Absolutely. Right? So let's take the data as it is. Let's see what good we can actually come from the data if I can. I mean, if we can. Okay. So yeah. it comes primarily from black neighborhoods. Okay. My next question would be, what are predominant black neighborhoods learning about cultures? And why is this hatred coming toward people that they view as successful? So what are we teaching them? Hmm. You know, so that would be my question, you know, after that, is it coming from kind of a subpar CRT view of the world, which a lot of inner city public schools actually do teach that says that you are an oppressed, you are, you are oppressed, you need to, you need to have contempt towards your neighbor. Is that possibly actually what's leading toward a racially diverse lens to view people in categories, which is causing that person to be violent? You know, and so you got to be really careful. So it's almost like the 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 PCA report 
are you possibly kind of re- like giving in to the very thing that's actually be- be- being promoted in some of these neighborhoods, which are actually feeding the anger in some of these young African-American kids? So you better look at all the facts here before you, this is the problem with cultural bandwagons. You don't know what mm. the heck you might be saying. And, mm. and you better get on like, you know, let's really dissect what truth versus untruth is. And anyway, it just, it just kind of, but yeah, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about Thomas Sowell other than the last, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that. Let's say a little something about Thomas Sowell. Yeah, I mean, right. I'm, sure. I'm yeah, I, I would love to. I know. Great. Western cultures. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Because he's, he's, there's, there's some hope there. It's an <laughs> well, there's hope book. in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. And then um, <laughs> so. I mean, almost all his books are total education. And uh, one of the things I just re- would like, I mean, he's not, he, people, you know, people might say he's one of the great black scholars of life. He's not one of the great black scholars. He's one of the great scholars alive, period. Yeah, Any absolutely. race, ethnicity, period. Okay. Yeah. And reading him is a serious education. He's a, just a few things I want to say. If your audience, you maybe you've already heard a little about, about um, Soul through um, Peter, but one of the incredible things about Soul is Soul is, he's just utterly fearless. Okay. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. care what ideology or political agenda, or if you're white or you're black or you're richer, he just doesn't care. He, he really, he's super evidential. He's kind of like, he's, he's really more, it's so he's um, he almost just like he's like a, a a fixture of another age that's much more deeply into evidential and, and not kind of into the feelings like we are today. Um, just this book. Let me just say a couple things about this book. This I've read chunks. This is the third book of a trilogy he wrote in the 90s. You know, is race and culture, migrations and culture and conquest and culture. I read race and culture many years ago mm. and I was like. I was like, whoa, this is an amazing book. And then it's foolish. I never read the other two books until more recently. After um, the George Floyd incident, I decided, well, you know what? Let's go read the other two books. So mm. I picked up Migration Culture. It blew me away. I was just, and then I, and then I go, and then I started this one. So let me just say just a couple things about this book. Some things that you'll find out if you read Soul is disparity almost never proves discrimination. It doesn't necessarily. It, it, there mm. can be discrimination with disparity, but disparity, one of the things he shows you and proves you again and again and again and again, disparity is just completely normal in history. Different yeah. cultures just care about different things. Different cultures are good at different things. I mean, like if your culture cares more about math than, you know, like athletics, right? You know, guess what? The people who are good at athletics are probably going to produce more athletes. The people who really care about math are going to probably produce a lot more engineers right mm-hmm. and and then he just shows that to you in in just mm-hmm. just example after example he shows it to you in the migrations he shows it to you in congress there's like um the thing that you pointed out which you'll learn from migrations and culture you know like uh you know, where a lot of the development that happens say in southeast asia is by like the chinese there's certain chinese minorities that were oppressed in china they flee they flee China and end up in Southeast Asia, and essentially they they change you know the whole economics of the whole region because of their industry and of, of their human capital and their talents and their knowledge. Well, this thing is going on all the time. Like there's a chapter in this book on the British. So we're not talking about white versus you know black. Mm-hmm. We're talking about white people and white people. You know we're talking about British folks and Romans. And what he talks about is you go into like the British Isles, you know, and here you got the English and the Welsh and so forth, right? And one of the things he points out is 
one of the things that even to this day makes different portion of, of the British Isles, you know, different in their culture and some of their strengths is because which parts were occupied by the Romans and which parts weren't. So mm. essentially the parts that were occupied by the Romans, even though, yeah, the Romans oppressed them and conquered them and killed some of them. And then, but then what the Romans did was come in and then they brought Roman governance. They brought Roman technology. They brought Roman know-how. They brought Roman writing. So to a people that was more primitive, right? What they got was far more knowledge and human capital. And then over the next couple hundred years or so, the portion that got that, guess what? They became comparatively further ahead than the, the, the folks who didn't. To this day, that's still a factor. Right. And so mm -hmm. just reading that one chapter alone on the British just completely blew. And then what he shows you is and you go and read about Africa <laughs> and you'll say, OK, all the development in East Africa. Did you know that the develop? I, I did not know this until I read this. A lot of the development, a lot of the most developed places in East Africa, they were first developed by Indians from India and from like um, I forget which European countries. I want to say Portugal. And was it? Uh, I forget which was the other one, right? There's like a couple, there's like two competing European countries <laughs> and the Indians. Mm -hmm. And they competed against each other for essentially for the economic and technological, because they had like the greater, the greater advantages of those things. And to this day, those cities and those places that had had that human capital in their history have disparity over against all the tribes and portions of their country that don't. And so this is a pattern that runs throughout history. And one of the things we really, we, we wish, we wish is that we could make things equal, you know, and by equal today, we really, what, what today's definition of equal means is equal in result, equal, you know, like equal money. These guys have like the same level of money. These are the same level of like achievement in, in given, in given realms, but really that's just not real what we what we need to do is get back to something more like the Bible. What we have is an equality in worth before God made in the image of God. But since we've kind of taken God out of our culture, what we want now is like, okay, we got to get equality of like outcome. We have to have equality of outcome and result. But if you look at history, history is regularly the non-equality of outcome because mm -hmm. just even apart from oppression, Soon as people get more human capital, more knowledge, more know-how, whoever gets that, they'll they'll get further ahead, and then what you're going to get a disparity. So that just it's just impossible to stop that. And the best you can do is to like get certain people that have more privilege or more advantage to walk alongside and win the trust and love of those who have less, just as the Bible calls us to do. Mm -hmm. But it's not like like you're going to just be able to solve it in one or two generations using some type of a political ideology or agenda. That's one of the great things I wish people can learn from reading and studying soul that like cultures really are so different in what they care about. And then actually what's, this is crazy. is like keeping your culture pure. Like we're only going to be inside our own little tribe. Actually, that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a beautiful there's this beautiful, I, I should find it for you, but there's this incredible paragraph where he sums up the whole chapter about the British and he's talking about the British Empire and how they became this incredible dominant empire throughout the world. And then what he does is he then tells you, he lists all the different things that they learned and received from somebody else's culture. 
right. over the you know the last couple thousand years. So the Brits didn't get all their stuff because they were English or because they were Scottish. The Scots became Scottish in the way that they are today because they gained so much from the Romans or the Arabs and all these other kinds of people. And that's kind of really what we're trying to have in America. And really, it's really one of the great blessings of the West, right? Mm. Of the West, if you want to call it that. The West today, in its actual best form, is not even just white and it's not even just Western. It's really like spreading, you know, that knowledge base and stuff is spreading all around the world. And so you get Western mm. universities, but the best Western universities in Korea are well, the ones started by the Christians, you know, that it's that kind of mm. thing that's and, and now, you know, the Koreans totally own those universities and they were Western universities. And if you ask me, those universities are Western products, but they weren't they weren't like pure Korean products or pure English products. And I wish people would would understand that no one set of people has a monopoly on the glories and the knowledge of God. And thus, even something like something that's like uh, that we would consider painful and bad, like conquest. Actually, this is crazy. And it's really hard for, I think, the 21st century postmodern to accept. But conquest actually in, in throughout history has produced a lot of common grace mm. for a lot of like downtrodden people um, that's still going on today. So, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Lot, yeah, so. no, no. That was good. Yeah, I was like, yeah, it was so good. Well, on your what your last point was too. I mean, Johan Norberg wrote a book called Open that came out in I think 2020. He's a Swedish economist, and he talked about that. I mean, he, and Sol has mentioned this as well, that you know, the people that actually were supposed to take over the whole world was was China, the Ming Dynasty, and the Hang. I, I can't remember which dynasty because they were actually um, interacting with you know multiple hundreds of different um, Romans and. Um, different tribes and then when there was i think there was a war maybe it was a pandemic <laughs> that had that actually happened and wiped out majority of the population and the han dynasty i think it was or the ming i can't remember decided to close all of its borders but they were significantly so much more advanced as a society because they were inviting a lot of people in and then the minute they kind of closed all their borders and didn't let anybody else in and just stayed with their own the tribe they decided they basically entered the dark ages but for almost a thousand years they were highly more advanced than anybody any other right. um i mean the brits were were the barbarians you know they were like, we were the we were the cavemen you know i mean talk on british you know so i mean totally backwards mm. and everything and that's what's really kind of fascinating you know about that i mean just and that's where he is what he has really taught me that that disparity does not equal uh discrimination or causation does not equal correlation or you know mm -hmm. so the same thing in basic you know and, and that's just a lot of people don't understand that you know and that mm -hmm. The, the question needs to be, too, that, you know, you have to look at, um, do you have a level playing field that where you can, does this, does this playing field allow you to succeed if you do certain things that will allow you to succeed? And the answer is yes. You know, and I mean, just, just because, I mean, there are multiple cases of that. One of the things that Seoul has taught me, I didn't know this, but, you know, the percentage Blacks were earning a significantly higher percentage of what whites were earning in 1988 than in 1967. Um, you know, that, that the, the income and the, the wage was significantly getting much, much better up until about 1969, even during Jim Crow, um, which was that, that was mind blowing to me. Not that you want to go back there at all. But I mean, there was a lot of success, even when there was a lot of suffering that was going on. Right. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is because black households had a high, high um, likelihood of staying married. 
right. teaching discipline and whatnot. The other thing too, that as far as back in 1969, black males who came from homes where there were newspaper, magazines, library cards, had the same incomes as white males from similar homes, same incomes. Um, that's mm -hmm. been going on every single year. Just that little teeny little fact that people don't realize. Just mm -hmm. the fact like black males who came from homes that there are newspapers, magazines, and library cards. Those three, those three things, same income as whites that came from the same place. So what is that? And mm -hmm. you know, you could also talk about husband and wife, wife families um, outside the South earn just as much as husband and wife families outside the South as well. So there are all these little holes that go into the you know most people's assumptions that if you see. Um, disparity must mean discrimination. And Sol brings that up as well. Like, no, I mean, the disparities have gone down for thousands of years. I mean, you know, if you live near a port, you're highly more successful. So I think, right. I mean, biblical That's times, great. you know, Paul yeah. talks about geography. The, yeah. I mean, Paul talks about that in Corinthians, all the temptations yeah. that they were facing right there on the port. You had all the temple prostitutes and you had all the high money, you know, all the money and everything else. I mean, there was, there were a lot more quote opportunities for those people living near water than there were if you're living on some kind of mountain. You know, that doesn't mean that there's racism. It just means like, how do we get <laughs> anyway? Right. But I mean, I, I, yeah, I think the biggest influence for me, for me was probably conflict of visions over all the facts and everything. I think when I read conflict of visions, that's where, um, which is this right here. Um, and, um, where he basically says that there's a constrained view versus an unconstrained view. Yeah, what is your assumption of, yeah. What is your assumption of human nature? And I liked it because it, it gives us some, some element of whom we're talking to, because if you have a constrained view of man, which is there are no solutions or only trade-offs <laughs> that we're all pretty selfish. And that's why, capitalism actually works is because it, it brings a lot more equality in the sense of, um, well, excuse me, there's a lot more accountability. And as a, as a small business owner, you have to um, be very accountable to your product. Um, then in those societies, that discrimination lowers significant, lowers quite a bit, you know, and that's why one of the things people um, at the deep South, one, Jim Crow was actually big on big government. And the reason for that is because, true capitalism actually um, worked in the sense that most Northerners who practiced this, you know, back then, um, you know, a free market kind of enterprise, the discrimination went down significantly because their product went up and their actually income went up pretty significantly. It wasn't because they were less racist than Southerners. You know, it was, it was quite, but anyway, going back on, on conflict divisions, but if you have this view of people that were all kind of selfish and we need a lot of accountability and there's really no solutions or really more trade-offs and how do you get that, then you're going to look for those things that are going to provide the best opportunity for all people. But if you have an unconstrained view of, of man in the sense that you think that there are surrogates, i.e. Fauci's and, you know, the, the, the experts of your field, I mean, <clears throat> there are people that I... God bless them. You know, there are therapists that literally will never go beyond what the CDC literally tells them what to do all the time. You know, there are people that live their whole life that way. Unless a surrogate is telling me exactly what to do, um, I can't live my life otherwise. And so for that view of man, your assumption is that there's a sense of utopia and these surrogates or these experts, the, the enlightened ones, the anointed they, they ones, the anointed, the anointed right? ones. Yeah. Anointed. Yeah. They help me along the path. And I think when you're talking to people, what is the presupposition? What's the presupposition on your view of humanity here? 
you know, and I, I would probably argue there's a little bit of both, you know, I mean, I think, and even soul would say that, but he's more on the constrained view more, much more so than you could see as, but um, there's no either or, but I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I like that book because it, it set the level playing field on that. There are deeper rooted issues on why we disagree about guns, why we disagree about taxes, what, you know, you have a totally different view of humanity than I do maybe. And maybe we can talk about that. Anyway, I, I didn't know if you had read that. And <laughs> that's been I the haven't biggest read influence. that specific book, but I'm familiar with those ideas. Yeah. 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 I thought it was interesting. I mean, I've been reading Discrimination and Disparities and related to what you guys are talking about, the he, he points out a lot of cases where discrimination it oftentimes backfires on the goal, right? The agenda of mm. building a, a more equity, it actually disrupts that equity and equality. Um, and so, or, or just the agenda or the goal of a nation. So for, mm. he uses the example of Hitler and his desire to, to, um, to have formulate the atomic, you know, the atomic bomb. And, and yet because of his discrimination against Jews, he actually lost the great, the, those who were contributing the most to the science behind the nuclear project. And mm -hmm. so it backfired on him because of his discrimination. He's he just pointing out how the fact that discrimination itself generally is not helpful. And especially when it's the government promoting that discrimination, it never works out in the favor of building up a nation, right? To be more yeah. united. Anyways. Well, same thing happened in baseball, Jackie Robinson. All the, hmm. all the owners are racist. <laughs> you know, they all were, if you read their reports. But the owner, you know, they, they who's it, the, was it the Dodgers? I think, I mean, I think, yeah. I, there you go, I, the Dodgers. Yeah, and I can't remember, <laughs> but I did, I did read, I did, did read that he was probably one of the most racist of all the owners. But he realized that that was a good product. I mean, hmm. that kind of humbles me that at the end of the day, we, you know, that's why we need Christ in that way. If I can get a, a diverge yeah. on that, we're not all special here. And, um, you know, it's just like uh, these these programs that the left really wants to do is not going to improve my humanity. I do need someone outside of me to improve me. Um, that's why your program is never going to make me less racist. You know, anyway. Eric has offered, he said, left-wing programs like the Great Society initiatives, LBG, seem to make disparities worse. This should be mm -hmm. a warning siren, not all do-gooding policies today be assumed to yield progress. Yes, I would totally yeah. agree with what Eric is saying there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd even push mm. it even more. There's actually, mm. well, so he calls them the anointed, but there, there, there's a certain kind of intelli intelligentsia, the intellige uh, there's a certain kind of elites who really do think that they know what's best for everybody else. Yeah. And mm. um, having been to those kinds of schools, yeah, that, that's a really real social reality. Quite frankly, a certain small sliver of people do tend to like have incredible power in certain institutions and they do have the very other view. They don't have this more constrained view of human nature where they essentially have a, a, a humbler and more empirical way of looking at like if you put something in place, hey, you should respect the fact that there's going to be unintended consequences and it's almost never going to quite turn out the way you think that mm. this kind of social engineering from the top down of people who think they know what's good for everybody we should have some really serious like skepticism about that and yeah. in general america's been pretty good at being able to undermine that spirit i mean we're a decentralized country 50 different states federalism etc mm. but but um they're they're <laughs> 
but nonetheless, you know, people who have a certain kind of education and certain kind of like, it's interesting how people who have certain families and tribes who have had power, especially at the beginning, it's strange how that tends to like last throughout the generations, but mm. it does tend to do that. And yet, um, you know, willingly allowing that kind of like, uh, you know, like a legacy of past power to be undermined by like, you know, new and uh, future meritocracy. I think that's actually really, really, it's one of the really good things about American culture. And uh, we're, I think it's in trouble. It is in trouble, right? Do you and, think they're uh, going to force the NBA to be half white and half black? <laughs> I, well, I mean, that's what, that, that's how I think about that. You know, like, I mean, just you know, curious. Like, uh, like right. we recently had, um, what's his I hope name? not. We would get a lot worse, worse players. And I don't exactly. know, well, I'm, recently, anti, I'm definitely not being anti-white saying that, you know, just well, like. I, I was watching. <laughs> there are some know, good white players, that, though, like, right? But not, well, not the many. The MVP's white, you know? Yeah, and, that's um, true. There's like one every, one every 10 years. If you ever watch. Is that because of racism? You know, right. I was watching Don and I was going, oh my goodness, this yeah, white guy is going yeah, to he's, he's like good. in the next two or three, he's going to be the best player in basketball. Yeah, right? yeah, he's and good. so he's really good. You know, it's because, <laughs> well, it's because they're just like, I want to win basketball games, and uh, right. I, you know, like, do they really care if he's white? At least I hope they don't care. They probably shouldn't care. If I'm the basketball team owner, I wouldn't care. But, but you know, like that's really kind of where we're at in so many places. But it's 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 like mm. it's hard for us to accept that kind of like excellence at a certain level in some pursuit doesn't come with like, well, it's going to be 75% white and 10% black. I mean, it's not going to fit those kinds of like so-called proportional representation because that's just not how it works. That's just not how reality works. Right. Mm -hmm. How does this helpful mm -hmm. for the, to close? I mean, I know we have to go, I'm sorry. Um, as a minister of the gospel, just, you know, our love for soul. And I'd love to hear your closing thoughts on this. I mean, how is this, and Brad, you too. I mean, how is this for y'all as, as, as ministers of the gospel? I could talk to a little bit as a counselor, how it helps me, but I mean, I'm just curious how, why that's edifying for y'all and you know, how it, how it helps you and you not mean, that you're well, something like soul. Yeah. Just, well, just curious. I mean, you know, I, I, not that you're equating soul with the Bible or anything, but I mean, yeah. how, how is it an edifi edification? edifying well, that, process for you yeah just curious just just to jump in real quick on that too uh, before we we totally conclude i you had mentioned oh, right. a few resources um on kind of a different approach to cultural issues or or at least resources from aaron meyer the cultural the culture map and then uh david livermore i wanted to get your thoughts on that i think that does lead us exactly where peter was saying what toward a solution um that maybe soul doesn't quite provide right yeah. soul get soul gives us the critique but doesn't really bring us to a, a solution so and then and then specifically maybe how has as peter said how has that been incorporated in your ministry um as you've tried to as you try to use those resources right i mean like soul doesn't give us i mean you can say that he, if you read between the lines, he implies sure. a lot of things, right? You know, like, hello, it's really good if your family stays intact, right? Yeah. And, right. you know, um, and I would even say, do you really need soul to teach you that? The Like, uh, hmm. I'll just say this before we move on to Eric Myers. Like, I did a series on biblical justice last fall. And I knew that when I got to the middle of the series, you know, I was going to, first I was going to say there's retributive justice. And if you're not a just person, God's going to burn you. Hello. That's why we, Pastors generally don't like preaching this part, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the Bible is very clear on that. 
But then he also says, but then there's restorative justice. That's that's the part where God gives us his grace and his mercy and his kindness. But in the restorative justice, there's a threefold emphasis on the fatherless, the widow, and what he calls the sojourner. You know, the ESV translate the sojourner. I don't know if it's the best translation for us. I, I said kind of the excluded minority. That's the way I put it in, in the preaching. But just that first bucket, the fatherless, does anybody think about that today? You know, mm. one of the reasons why progressive activists who like to talk about justice don't want to talk about, you know, two-parent households is because it's a lot of the same progressive activists are the ones who are destroying the family through the idolatry of sexuality. And so we want to have some kind of like just cause by justice over here, and then we'll call it oppression. But wait a second, if we actually look for some kind of more empirical solution, like how about let, let's restore the family, right? And one of the things that I would love to just see is, I think if like let's just let's just if poor Black America, poor mm -hmm. Hispanic America, poor White America, you know, uh, which you know they they're they're suffering a lot of these same problems. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever if you've read the book Hillbilly Elegy. It's an incredible I've, read, right? I've read the reviews of it and watched <laughs> the movie. Yeah, uh, it's the yeah. book is way better. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure. Right? But. But it, again, it goes to the issue of of, of, of dads, you know, like mm -hmm. like you know, does our society know how to produce men who are not violent, men who are sexually faithful, and who will love and cherish and you know equip their children, right? You know, what, and that's mm -hmm. not even like apart from the gospel, right? But that's that's what the that's what the Bible calls for. And if I think if the poor minority folks would follow that plan, we don't really need all this other agendas. Okay. Now mm -hmm. let me say a little something about what you're asking for, Peter. I really want. Okay. I'll. I I have no commission from plugging this book. <laughs> I'm just telling you that. Um, I love this book, The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer. I've I've read multiple books or looked for a, a resources like this, and uh, I finally um, I think this is the best one that I've yet come across. And what Aaron Meyer does is, so just for those of you who don't know, Aaron Meyer is um she's American and she is um. She's a cross-cultural expert that teaches in an international business school in Paris. Her husband is French. So all her students are global business leaders from all around the world. She's like Singaporean leaders, French leaders, American leaders, Chinese. I mean, like they're Russian, Israeli. They're coming from all around the world. So she, she's not talking in terms of just theories here. She's not giving you some psychology or sociological theory. She's giving you realities that she's tested and then she and then you're talking about business leaders they're not going they don't want some theory <laughs> they want something that's real and that works so that right. when they go back to their company and you're like okay here's my team that guy's dutch that guy's american this guy's you know like this from nigeria how do i make this work right and what she does is she she takes you through like eight different facets of how cultures do different things. So let me just give you an example of one. Um, chapter two is, um, oh wait, chapter two, evaluating performance and providing negative feedback. Okay, she goes with the many faces of polite. And so what she shows you is that on a spectrum, what you have is, you know, like, uh, so just for example, the previous chapter is about what she calls low context versus high context language. Hmm. And low context language means that you're basically blunt, okay? Like okay. the context is low, we don't have a shared context, therefore you just have to say things in a direct way. So, you know, the obvious, uh, you know, um, 
the obvious uh, uh, contrast here would be like Japan would be high context language. They speak in a kind of subtle way. Like if they ask you, like if you ask, could we do this? And the Japanese person goes, we will try. We will try basically means it's not going to no. happen, man. Right. <laughs> right? Right. You know, that's a super polite way of saying mm, probably not. But they say it in this very more subtle and very, very polite way. Right. Mm. And then whereas like Americans are like, no way in hell, it's not going to happen, man. <laughs> you know, like it's very direct, <laughs> low, low, uh, you know, like low context language. And one of the one of the points that she makes is if you have multi, you know, if you're kind of a multi ethnic and multicultural like gathering, what you have to do is you have to use low context language <laughs> because you yeah. don't have a shared understanding and a shared culture. Can everybody do it the way the Koreans do it or everybody do it the way the Russians do it? No, we, sorry, just kind of have to get it to the lowest common denominator, which means direct language, right? Hmm. So everybody kind of knows Americans are very direct, low context speakers, but this chapter, chapter two is about how do Americans, or not just Americans, how do people do negative feedback? Hmm. So when I read this chapter is everybody, so this happens apparently in the business world all the time. So people are like, uh, you know, let's say they're, you know, Let's say they're from Asia and they just like, okay, white Americans, they're direct speakers. They use low context language. That's how they talk. They're blunt people, right? Great. Everybody knows Americans are blunt people. So then when they do like, you're going to do like feedback in your business team, they expect that the white American is going to be blunt. But guess what? Not so. <laughs> On the spectrum of like very blunt versus like very, very kind of like very sensitive, America is right in the middle. Mm -hmm. so if you look at the, so to a lot of people, they show up like, so first of the Dutch, the Dutch are very, mm -hmm. very blunt. The Dutch have German. this view like, hey, did I do a bad job? Well, I'm not a child, man. If you don't talk to me and really tell me what I did wrong, very, very clearly, dude, they, that's con they actually get offended because mm. they consider it a form of condescension, right? And so, you know, like, so, but the Dutch, when they find out that Americans don't operate that way, they're kind of shocked, right? So here's mm. this thing that like, you know, you'd think that direct language, blunt language, low context language would also translate to a kind mm. of blunt and direct, you know, negative feedback, but that is not the case, you know? Wow. So like this, I'm just using that one because like we're here, we're, we're talking about white folks and white folks. So here's another good example that gets us back to race. If you meet a person whose background is more Dutch, let's say they're from the Midwest, they're from like Michigan and they're like Dutch, third generation Dutch background. And you meet someone who's got, let's say they're more Anglos, you know, Anglo-Saxon background. On this issue, hello, they may differ and they're both white. And here we go on something of culture that's, you know, where like this white tribe and this white tribe, well, they actually differ quite a lot. And so this is what I would like us, you know, in my church, I like I basically sit in front of my people and read this book. <laughs> I'm going to probably make all my elders read this book. And there's no way anybody of us can master all this stuff. Just no way. But if we could just pick up a couple here and there especially whoever is in your midst, you know, like mm. I have lots of Indians in our neighborhood. And so like, I'm like, you can go on the website and what they do is on the eight different factors. What they do is they actually map it. So, mm. you know, like you can, you can, you can like type in Korean and then they'll give you like a map. Like the Korean map tends to be over here. The American map tends to be over here, by the way. <laughs> right. It's like, in other words, mm -hmm. American and Korean culture, they just have very deeply intuitional different 
habits. But this is interesting. Yeah. When, we, when we threw the Indian map up there, you know what happened? The Korean map was like this. The Indian map was really close. Mm. <laughs> and I looked at that That's and right. I said, oh, well, you know, on the outside, you know, they look brown and they're from South India, you know, South Asia and stuff like that. But kind of on the inside, they're actually a lot more similar to us Koreans. And that's one of the things I like, just as an example of something I would like our church to get, like, you know, my church is probably like about 75% Korean, 25% other, okay? Mm -hmm. I have a friend whose church is probably like about 80% Indian, 20% other. Both of our churches want to become multi-ethnic, reach the nations, you know, that's actually the the, the mission um, tagline of our church, new life in Christ for the nations of Silicon Valley. We're super diverse out here and a lot of immigrants. So one of the things I would love to do is to just get my people to pick up just a few things and learn something that they don't know. And like one of the things they might find out is like Indians seem really, really different than us. You know, they're brown and aren't they mostly Hindu, et cetera. But actually, if you get into their life, you're going to find out that a lot of your like relational and, 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 and like, you know, expectations, they actually align very, like if you're Korean American, it's mm. probably going to align pretty well to Indians. And in my own personal experience, that, that has turned out to be true. Yeah, and yeah. so, like, that's like a beautiful thing to find out. And and hopefully, like, my folks who tend to be more from East Asia will go, oh, really? You know what? Mm. I should just get really, like, happy and comfortable around, you know, South Asian folks. And it will probably be more of a layup for me to try to reach them for Jesus than maybe somebody else. So, like that's just one kind of takeaway that I'd hopefully like to see. Some that's fascinating. Use, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. That is good. Yeah. Well, well. The, the only, the only thing, and I know we, we got to close this up cause we got to go, but um, you mentioned one other resource and I, so I don't know if you want to say something briefly about that, David Livermore and, and the great course. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'll just say, that's the other thing that I found it's called mm -hmm. um I think the actual title of the of the class is called Customs of the World. Customs okay. of the World using cultural intelligence to connect something like that, right? Mm. And David Livermore is a professor from I want to say University of Michigan and this is his expertise. He's lived all around the world. So they they call this thing cultural intelligence and he basically does a similar thing except it's on video so if you don't want to read a book this is a good way to go. You can um, you can get this customs of the, you know, get this. Obviously, it's an expensive video if you want to buy it, but I would just suggest <laughs> you, uh, you know, like wait for a sale and then this price will go down and then buy it for your, buy it, you know, and, or you could, um, you could, uh, you know, again, I'm not being paid for this. All right. You could just, right. um, I think they have like a Netflix type subscription for, for the great courses and then you get all their content for like $15 a month. Now, I just want to plug one thing toward the back of that class. In the back of that class, here, let me see if I've got it here. In the back of that class, I looked it up, actually. In the back of this class, he has a, a bunch of lessons. And this is kind of how he breaks up the different cultural groups of the world. He has, um, he calls them, um, he starts with Anglo cultures. America is obviously more of an Anglo culture, even though, if, even if you're black, hello, you're an Anglo culture, okay? At least an Anglo-dominant culture, right? Uh, Nordic Europeans, Germanics, Eastern European and Central Asian, Latin European, Latin American, interesting he separates those two, Confucian Asian, South Asian, Sub-Saharan African, and Arab culture. So he has a lesson, he has a whole lecture 
on each one of those kinds of groups. And he tells you kind of what those kinds of people are more like. And so if you want something more like a 30 minute lesson, say on like South Asians, you could watch that lecture. And, you know, if you don't really want to read that book. So I actually think just for just those eight or nine lectures alone, that that, that class is worth it. All right. That's great. That's great. That's great. Just, yeah. Awesome. Just, thank well, you for so much for coming on. It's just, yeah, I learned yeah. a lot. It was very good. To, it's so cool that y'all are uh, in all these. We're we're in such different areas and um, Silicon Valley and Northern California and Boston. Yeah. So um, if we can encourage all the people that are, you know, in the middle of the country to <laughs> keep persevering. <laughs> so don't be. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I. Um, I mean, well, but I really appreciate it. I I'd just like to say is like sometimes I've, I do. Maybe this would be like, you know, I probably sound like some flaming conservative or something like that. <laughs> right? I live in the Bay Area. It's super diverse out here. And, you know, obviously, you know, we're quote unquote more gay, but like the gay agenda is spreading all over the country. But I think one of the things I really do want to say is it's it's pretty shocking for some of the people from my neck of the woods when they go to around the country and then they just see like everybody in this neighborhood is white. Oh, wait a second. Everybody in that neighborhood is black. Mm -hmm. And so... It is. I, I do think we do need to have compassion and understanding that, like the deep-seated like habits, and you know, like where the different races and cultures just try to stay in their like quote unquote in their little lanes. That's that's ending and breaking in America right now, and yeah. in yeah. a very good and needed ways. And um, I just wish you know people didn't have these political agendas. It's kind of like if we just mm -hmm. be a little bit more patient. In about 20 years, way more white people are going to marry way more black people. And then mm. everybody can relax a little bit more. We'll have more Patrick yeah. Mahomes, okay? Right? Yeah. And so, like, you know. I think like, I was more saying don't envy us living here. I think this is one thing I would love to say to your audience is I, I do think we're actually going Although I do, I do, way, like, I do like where right? we are. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It is. Way. It's yeah. just, I hope people wouldn't politicize it and we would be a lot more, you know, patient. When, 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 when my white pastor and, you know, like ruling elder friends asked me, hey, Susan, you got any advice for, for us? You know, like our church is mm. like 98% white. Mm -hmm. I would say, I was like, in your city, the black people are all like, like a mile and a half away. <laughs> like mm. one of the things I would do is why don't you call up the past, the senior pastor of the black church, you know, that's two miles away from you and say, hey, can we have a fellowship event? Mm -hmm. Or like, can we start a friendship? So instead of trying to solve all justice issues or whatever, why don't we just start with friendship? Let's mm. start with trust. Let's be brothers. Yeah. And so right. instead of like looking at each other, it's like, you're black, I'm white, you're different, you're right. over there, we're over here. Like, and why don't we start with, you believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, we love Jesus, mm. you love Jesus, therefore we want to love you, you know? And like, let's learn to actually walk together and be friends and love each other and build mutual trust and respect. And then mm -hmm. maybe we can find some win-win places where we could serve together and yeah. our people can walk together. And then like, who knows what will happen from that? I, that's kind of the way I'd like to see us go. Yeah. That's kind of happening in our presbytery. And I'd like to see more and more of that. And I think that's one of the things I'd just like mm -hmm. to commend to some mm -hmm. of your listeners out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the word. Yeah, I appreciate Such that. Such a radical concept, you know, treating, know. <laughs> treating others as you want to be treated, befriending and, your um, neighbor. And yeah. they're Christians too. Hello, they're family. Like, right, right. Let's right. treat your family like family, <laughs> right? You know? Amen. And, 
It's good. And y'all could fi find, uh, she's saying it, uh, she's saying it, uh, reviveprez.church. I believe that's the website. Yeah. So, okay. Is there, do um, you have any you. other? You have a YouTube we, channel, we have, but. We do have an Instagram channel, which of course, since I'm too old, I, I don't really know how that works. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure um, just, yeah. I think y'all have an Instagram. Y'all do have an Instagram. Yeah. yeah, revive. You can find us on revive revive Presbyterian Church on the yeah, it's well, Instagram. it's revive Pres okay. Church. So revive yeah. Pres Church is our is our is our website, and you can find then, revive Presbyterian on YouTube. Nice, well, and then all the you. links are at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Was a pleasure talking to you, Susong. I'm sure we'll keep the conversation going at Presbytery level and uh, in our committees, but um, look forward to uh, just seeing how the Lord works through these issues and allows the church to. Uh, I guess get more grounded and and have an ability to to stand against a culture that is increasingly more and more chaotic and and uh, secular on these thank issues. You. Thank you again. All right. Good yeah, talking thanks, to you, man. Guys. Hope this is a uh, blessing. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yes. Very much. Yes. Thank you.